0: Welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm your host, Justin Logan. Today on the podcast, a discussion with Dr. Scott Silverstone, Professor of International Relations in the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He's also a visiting fellow at the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at Catholic University and the author, most recently, of From Hitler's Germany to Saddam's Iraq, The Enduring False Promise of Preventive War on which we'll center the discussion today. He'll be in conversation with my colleague, Gil Barndollar, Senior Research Fellow at CSS. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
1: Good morning. Thanks, Good to be Bethan. here. Good to see you again, Scott, even uh, even at a distance this way. Yeah, it's, joining us.
2: it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um,
1: can I, if, you, can, if I can start you off with talking, can you tell our listeners about your background? Uh, you took an interesting path and, and you and I, as we've discussed Grew up uh, 15 minutes apart, although we didn't know it until we met decades later. But can you can you uh, give a, a short summary of sort of how you came to your position at, at West Point and uh, what what your experiences were leading up to that? What brought you there?
2: Yeah, I have um, I've had a great life. I have uh, have had a very satisfying career. I went to the University of New Hampshire. I'm a small town New Hampshire boy. Grew up in the seacoast. Went to the University of New Hampshire about 20 minutes down the road. Um, sort of unsure about what I wanted to do in the world, but I had this sort of romantic notion of uh, of wanting to be out in the world, not knowing uh, sort of what position uh, I wanted to to play. And I had two amazing political science professors uh, as a sophomore that just sort of opened my eyes to uh, all the big questions of of power and security and order. Uh, this is during the early Cold War, early 1980s, and really became fascinated by Uh, the the really big existential questions that uh, were on the front burner at that point in time. And I decided uh, my wanderlust uh, had to get the best of me, so I joined the Navy. I I went to Aviation Officer Candidate School uh, back in uh, 1985, 1986, and I was commissioned as a Naval officer. Uh, Went to flight school, I flew P-3 Orion's. Uh, It's a land-based reconnaissance anti-submarine warfare aircraft. Um, And I was stationed at Barber's Point Naval Air Station in Hawaii. Uh, This is back in the late Cold War, late 1980s. So I cut my teeth when there was still a Soviet Union uh, and still a few Soviet subs roaming the Pacific Ocean. Uh, But it was an amazing point uh, in my life, uh, getting out there and and seeing the world and doing the things that I uh, had, had dreamed about doing. But I had this seed planted as an undergraduate student, uh, really thinking about these big ideas and, and thinking about being a college professor and, and being a, a professional educator. Uh, so I, I did a tour at the Pentagon. I worked uh, on the Navy staff for the Chief of Naval Operations uh, as a crisis planner and uh, working with nuclear survivability programs. And I left active duty in 1993, went to graduate school at UPenn uh, to get my PhD to pursue that path and stay in the reserves until 2000. Uh, so all the issues that uh we were dealing with during the 1990s had a chance to uh play a role uh as a reservist in the in the Pentagon um and then i f- ended up at west point it was just one of many jobs i applied to when i was on the market back in uh the early 2000s uh and i'm uh, in my 20th year uh at the academy teaching international relations
1: yeah and as you said i mean you arrived on on cusp, I guess, You, I think you told me, remind me, I, I think you were um, obviously in class that day and, we're, and you arrived right before September 11th, right? So, I mean, your timing was, I don't know if we call that fortuitous or, or what, um, but it's but really interesting time that you arrived as, as the Army and as the nation were on the cusp of a, of a very new couple of decades.
2: Yeah, that's right. I actually arrived at West Point in the summer of 2001, and we start our semester in August. So I was teaching the Intro to International Relations course. Uh, I'm three weeks into the semester, and then we get hit on 9-11. So you think about everything the U.S. Army has been through, Afghanistan, Iraq, Afghanistan again, uh, this real fixation uh, that the Army has had on this particular problem set, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, uh, the big nation building debate. Um, and this put, of course, tremendous stress on on West Point trying to figure out how do you educate future officers to go out and do this particular kind of mission. Um, and, you know, as a as sort of a classic Cold War, great power politics guy uh, coming from the Navy, I felt like a fish out of water, pardon the pun, uh, mm-hmm. at West Point um, because this this whole counterterrorism, counterinsurgency thing specifically wasn't uh, my area of expertise, while this was exactly what my students had to focus on and, and when they were doing their deployments, what they were dealing with when they went, when they went down range um, and sort of a, the, the, those strange cycles of history always come back. Now we are back in a period of great power politics um, and the Pacific means something in a way it didn't, frankly, when I started at West Point 20 years ago. So um, for good or ill, I feel a little more relevant today hmm uh, in my, in terms of my military experience and my academic expertise than I did, uh, for the first
1: 10 years, 15 years, uh, at the Academy. Hmm. Yeah. There's a, a little bit of circularity to that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. It strikes me too, that, uh, I'm pretty sure we used the, the P threes and, and now the P eights again, sort of fish out of water, doing surveillance stuff and doing land-based, you know, doing like, like every element of the military over these, these couple of decades of small wars, doing things they weren't, Purpose built for, right?
2: Yeah, it was strange it was to
1: read.
2: The yeah, the P3s are using their their um, ISAR radars to track convoys uh, traveling through Afghanistan. To me, that just right. blew my mind, right? Just trying to find relevance. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, could you, for our listeners as well, could you unpack a little bit? Because West Point's an interesting institution um, as, as an academic institution, you know, in, in terms of the Structure the professors there. Can can you unpack a little bit the the kind of uniqueness of being a civilian, never mind a veteran, but a civilian professor there? Uh, you know, paired up sometimes or, or working certainly in your, in your department and colleagues with both um, civilian, P, you know, PhD holding, terminal degree holding uh, professors, and experts in their field, and then military professors that are sort of mid career. They're taking some time off to come back, often alumni, but not necessarily come back to the institution, teach, work. You know, usually get a graduate degree in the process. Um, and how that sort of changed as, a, as an academic, um, how that is a, a different animal in your role as, as a, a colleague, a sounding board, a mentor for kind of two, at least two sort of different sets of colleagues.
2: Yeah, it is a very different type of institution. And I will tell you, it has been an incredibly rewarding place for me to really spend the bulk of my academic career Um it is run by the U.S. Army. It's, um, I will say it's, it's, it's quite an enlightened institution. We have excellent leadership. And what, um, as, as a civilian professor at West Point, there are 25% of the faculty is civilian, uh, which obviously means 75% are military officers. Uh, the senior leadership are all colonels or brigadier generals, PhD holding. Um, running the academic program from a leadership perspective, but um, to work alongside these mid-career officers that take a few years out, they go to graduate school, they come back and they teach. Um, and you know clearly for the last 18 years or so, they've been combat veterans. So their opportunity to have this incredibly developmental experience to build intellectual capital for the US Army and to go back to the big army to continue their careers, uh, is an amazing contribution. So part of my job is to actually help uh, the continuing education and professional development of these mid-career officers that we are hoping are set up for uh, increasing positions of command um, uh, as they go along with their, their careers. And for me, it's been an amazing experience to learn from them to have this um, this immediate experience as colleagues telling their stories, um, enlightening me about what they've experienced in the places the US Army has sent them. Uh, and then knowing that my students are going to experience that same, uh, that same deployment pattern and, and same problem set uh, that my colleagues have. So it, it has been this really interesting circular process in which frankly, it's been seven years now that I've had former students actually come back as colleagues. Right, and teach sure. for a few years um, which which is so rare for any college professor to have yeah you know, thats so unique isn't it dozens dozens of my former students have come back and they're they're doing great in the u s army doing great great things for for the nation um so it gives me a lot of um a lot of pride and, and satisfaction
1: yeah that, that must be fantastic as you said to, to get to get them coming back as you know senior captains, junior majors and now they've um, they're, a they're giving back to the institution and B they kind of immediate feedback. as you said, it's very rare that an academic would have one of their students come back you know and, and be a colleague, even a junior colleague next door uh, that, that's probably almost unheard of in civilian academia right? It is it is yeah. It's a great privilege. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Uh, and I want I want to talk about your book and, and spend some time talking preventive war, but one final question about um, your your experience at West Point, how do you find that? I think I think in some ways West Point is uh, the and US sort of PME establishment in general, but as, but especially the military academies uh, and West Point, is, you know, this beautiful, forbidding Gothic place, as, as you well know, they get sort of easily caricatured as as being kind of militarist and and sort of hidebound as someone that's maybe more um, heterodox and realist in your in your views of international affairs and the use of use of military force. Um, what has been your kind of uh, experience broadly with with both civilian and and military colleagues in terms of your approach to some of these big questions, especially maybe if you can go back a little bit to the to the years after nine uh, eleven during the Iraq War?
2: Yeah, you know one of the frustrating things for me in the run up to the Iraq War, I was a critic of the Iraq War. I felt um, that that uh, the strategic rationale being laid out just did not make sense i think uh, i I was thinking at the time that we were um, setting ourselves up for much greater problems than actually needed to be solved but there was such a powerful rally around the flag effect if you think about just within the classroom itself um, it was impossible for me to get my cadets to even for sake of argument to think critically about the rationale for going to iraq Um, and this was something they they believed in. They believed this was an appropriate projection of American power. Um, but I will tell you, sadly, when the insurgency flared 2004, 2005, 6, seven, when it was really bad, um, the cadets actually uh, became a lot more open-minded and willing to mm-hmm. actually think about why did we go in? What are we trying to do? How ambitious uh, can we really set our sights in this particular conflict? and through frankly 18 years of painful experience what i have noticed among my former students and my current colleagues among those who have had multiple deployments both in iraq and afghanistan they are dealing with sort of a a duality in their own intellectual effort to grapple with this experience with their experience and, and with what the united states has tried to do on one hand they are professionals and as you know when you're given a mission, once the decision is made by political leadership and they set the goals that the military is supposed to accomplish, they sink their teeth into the mission like a bulldog and you hold on and you you work as hard as you can for as long as you need to, advising the chain of command with, with the experience and the analysis that you have. But every day you work as hard as you can to get the job done that you were given. But at the same time, the other part of their brain is telling them, maybe it's not going to work maybe the objectives are unreasonable maybe we don't have the tools to actually shape this society in the in the direction that we're trying to shape it so i've seen this this um this very honest intellectual um effort sort of struggle with the professional commitment of military officers to to do the job that they're given um and and some do it more successfully than others. I would say that, you know, West Point, because it is an academic institution, because they've all gone to graduate school and they've had this experience within civilian institutions of, of, of developing their critical thinking skills and, and being exposed to a more diverse set of ideas beyond the U.S. Army, um, that this is a, a really smart, open-minded group of army officers and i think if if one thing that west point could be proud of beyond educating cadets uh and commissioning second lieutenants is that this whole notion of, of building intellectual capital mm-hmm. um of, of sort of taking these young officers with with very serious operational experience and very serious intellectual analytical development and you combine those two and then they go back to the big army um, as either commanders in the field or or strategists, uh, advising commanders, and that's a really powerful contribution. Um, as we continue to think about these these problems that that seem to morph um, but remain complex.
1: Yeah, and West Point, I, having spent a little bit of time up there with, uh, doing research in the last couple of years, it's got some interesting little kind of. Uh... Intellectual bolt holes too, right? These almost quasi think tanks, the Modern War Institute, uh, OIMA, the the Manpower Cell there, underneath underneath your offices there. Um, it's interesting how the Army uses that place. It, it seems to me, from the outside looking in, as as a um, you know the the Cyber Army Cyber Institute now, a lot of little interesting places to kind of stash talented people doing interesting work.
2: And we have our Combating Terrorism Center there. Yes, right, CTC so- of
1: course. Yep. And, yeah.
2: and and it, it's been important, you know, certain army leaders over time have recognized the fact that, you know, within the army staff, um, clearly a lot of very important work is being done, but you're in the army staff, you're in the Pentagon, and that can have a very mm-hmm. um, stifling effect on the ability of of staff officers to think creatively. So why not create these little centers at West Point? Uh, leverage the academic talent that's already there on the faculty, and leverage the academic climate of, mm-hmm. of free inquiry, of critical thinking, of peer review, uh, outside the day-to-day pressures of, of working on a, on a big military staff.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit analogous to what you talked about earlier in terms of the you know operational uh, commanders up and down the chain being sort of blinkered and focused on the task at hand, necessarily, and how that strikes maybe a broader appreciation of the problem. Um, yeah, moving on to your book, um, your your book, uh, twenty nineteen book from Hitler's Germany to Saddam's Iraq, the enduring false promise of preventive war, um, which which I really enjoyed and would strongly recommend to our listeners, and I think is a great unpacking uh, of of the history and of of the uh, the dynamics of, of this issue of preventive war. Can you uh, clarify it sort of the basic level? The, the difference has been written about, of course, but but for people that, that encounter these terms casually, can you break down the difference between preventive war and preemptive war?
2: Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, this is one of my pet peeves, yeah, because really um, over the last 19 years since um, the run up to the Iraq war, the word preemption has been used to describe uh, the Iraq case, um, the logic behind going to war against Iraq because of the weapons of mass destruction. Um alleged programs. um, The question of what to do about Iran, the North Korea debate. um, But there's a really important distinction between preemption and preventive war. Both are rooted in the same basic problem. Both are rooted in sort of this ancient temptation that we see going back literally to the ancient Greeks 2,500 years ago that's rooted in fear of the future. And it's the decision to take the first move militarily against a potential adversary but preemption is taking the first move initiating military conflict when you have strong evidence that you are going to face an attack you've got a window of opportunity And instead of absorbing this first blow, you decide to take first mover advantage and you hit first. So preemption, if there's enough evidence that in fact you were going to be the victim of an attack, historically has been considered legitimate self-defense. Under international law, you do not have to absorb the first punch if you can demonstrate that uh, you were about to be the victim of an attack. Under just war theory, it's considered ethical. And from an operational strategic perspective, it sounds like a wise thing to do um, to hit your adversary first when you know um, that that, uh, he's preparing to hit you. Preventive war, preventive action is different. It is about fear of the future, but it's a situation in which you are watching a potential adversary become stronger over time, developing new capabilities, new weapon systems, uh, reforming its army, its its economy is growing in a way that provides an opportunity for military modernization. And as you watch this process occur today, you think about what are the implications two years from now, five years from now? What if we get into a conflict down the road after my potential adversary continues to become stronger and stronger that conflict is going to come at a much higher cost so historically we've seen this temptation to say why should i sit back and watch my potential adversary become stronger doesn't it make more sense to hit him today to to target those capabilities that haunt my visions of the future but at the end of the day you have to grapple with the fact that there is no certainty uh, about what the future actually holds you don't know if you're going to actually uh, go into a conflict with this adversary. You don't know whether this is going to end in some kind of a more costly fight. So you are taking incredibly risky, incredibly bold action, delivering fire and fury, to use President Trump's phrase, without knowing what it is you're actually preventing, which of course sets us up for all sorts of ethical problems, legal problems, and strategic problems. Uh, if you decide to jump through that window,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it, it strikes me. I know this isn't directly dealt with in your book, but but the case has certainly been made, and I think increasingly made by historians that that World War One, you know, the, in some ways the, the biggest of all the cataclysms, the World War One was was partially driven by German fear of exactly that, right, of, of rel- Russia's relative power growing and of. of uh, you know whether you're looking at the railroad numbers or steel production or all these sort of metrics of, of industrial power and, and that's national power uh, and that idea of um, as you said cutting them off and, and, and uh, striking before that that power balance had gotten uh, had gotten so unfavorable.
2: Yeah, in uh, the World War One case, clearly you can't explain Germany's motives. Um, you can't explain their fear that drove them in the crisis of July 1914 toward war without understanding their, their fear of the Russian Colossus. And essentially what the German leadership was thinking about in 1913, 1914, was if we do not fight the Russians before 1917, they will reach a position in their own power, um, at which they will crush Germany. They will subdue us for the indefinite future. So they saw the crisis of 1914 as an opportunity. Um, and the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, 1941 is the same logic. Japan saw itself in relative decline compared to the United States. Uh, they saw this window of opportunity to hit America hard, to destroy the fleet, uh, open up space to grab uh, additional territory in Southeast Asia, consolidate their empire um, before the United States could could rebuild and come back. So it, it's frankly, it's, it's a um, preventive war is a much more common strategy historically than preemption is, um, but it uh, ha- hasn't always worked out for uh, the initiators.
1: That's interesting. I I, forgot, I think you've you've written that, and I'd, I'd forgotten that, that that prevention is actually even though it's a much more as you say a much more radical and, and destabilizing and and fraught endeavor, it's actually historically more common than than a straightforward preemptive war, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's right. There's really only one great um, classic case of preemption. It's the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Yeah. Um, And the Israelis, of course, struck first, but everybody knew what was coming. The Arab states were in the final phases of preparing another attack against Israel. Israel decided it was not going to sit back, um, and it won that that brilliant six-day victory. But politically… Um, the Israelis got away with it because everybody watching understood what the Arab states were in the final stages of putting it together. But it's really the only good crystal clear case we have of preemption. Um, mm. Preventive action is much more
1: common. Yeah. Um, can you, going back to the book's title in a way, and it, I think because it's sort of the classic example of this, and I've even, you know, and I've had discussions around D.C. Where this, where this gets brought up as, as sort of part of that larger, and I think... Um, you know, misguided or sort of half baked, uh, Jeremiah against American, uh, quote unquote American isolationism, but this idea, this idea that you could have kind of um, stopped stopped Hitler's rise in, in 1936 at that moment of the, the reoccupation of the Rhineland. You know, it's sort of a more um, intellectual and built out version of the if you could go back in time and kill baby Hitler in the cradle. It's sort of a sort of a higher end version of that argument. Can you unpack that? Because I was struck by that in, in, in reading your book. Um, did you really attack that? And I appreciate that, that you attack that kind of root and branch and, and really dug into the history of that and what that, what was really happening in that moment and what could have happened.
2: Yeah. Um, this, um, this particular book is my second book on preventive war and, and the, and the quick backstory As I was working on this, uh, first book, uh, preventive war in American democracy that, uh, was published back in 2007. The deeper I got into the literature on preventive war and I took a look at the way political leaders talked about the preventive war option, the more I came across claims that referred back to the Rhineland crisis of 1936. Um, And this common refrain was that if there had been any case historically in which preventive war was the right choice that could have prevented future catastrophe. It was the Rhineland crisis of 1936. This rapid remilitarization of Western German German territory um, in March of 1936. It was a, a violation of the Versailles Treaty. It created a crisis at the time, and the French were actually willing to mount an offensive operation to push push a relatively small German force back out of the Rhineland, back across the Rhine River. But they made this 100% contingent on British support, at least British political support, and the Brits vetoed this. And they had a strategic rationale for vetoing this option. But ever since 1936, you know, you're strangling Hitler in the cradle is that classic sort of the the earliest form of preventive action um, that we we hear people refer to. But this Rhineland crisis moment has been treated very seriously, and it's become politicized, and that's what began to bother me and i was curious i I was you know asking myself well somebody must have written a deep dive on the history of the mid to late 1930s that looked at this time frame not the munich crisis of 1938 it's a very different situation but if the rhineland crisis of 36 is this golden moment somebody must have picked this apart because it's it's such a strongly asserted Counterfactual about what could have happened, and what I discovered was nobody had actually done a deep dive on the history.
1: But it's it had been taken for granted, isn't it? Sorry, say it's again. Good. It's almost taken for granted, isn't it? That people just assume had there been, uh, you know, this preventive war and this and this armed pushback against the Rhineland reoccupation, that would have been it, right? They always point to the kind of timorous generals and 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 almost like it, it would have been a, a done deal. It comes back to that that idea of predicting the future you talked about.
2: That's exactly right. It's it's just a a, a very simplistic assumption, uh, the strategic outcome that typically is floated, the scenario. And Winston Churchill actually wrote about this um, mm-hmm. in his memoirs of the Second World War in support of this claim that they made a mistake by not actually uh, moving in 1936. You know, he envisioned a coup uh, by the German army against the Nazi regime. Or they float um, the, that this would have been seen by Adolf Hitler as such a disgraceful uh, rejection of his, uh, his efforts to rebuild German power that uh, Hitler would have been cowed, that it would have deflated his, his ambitions for Germany's future. Uh, but nobody's actually taken a look at the counterfactual and sort of played with what was the strategic situation at the time, what political consequences, even if the French were successful in pushing the German army back across the Rhine River, would it have had these amazing strategic results? And what really bothered me was, over the last 20 years, as we've been debating, as we were debating what to do about Iraq before the invasion of 2003, um, as we've debated what to do about Iran in its nuclear program, what to do about the North Koreans, this case has been raised over and over again by those who support the preventive war option and they essentially say don't be like britain and france attack iraq don't be like britain and france attack iran so here we've taken this um this distorted historical case and we've politicized it and it's being used as this sort of lightning rod to shame those who want to take a more cautious approach toward these these very complex problems because you know nobody wants to be like the British and French before World War II, right? It's one of those historical lessons we keep coming back to. But it's I much that
1: club, really.
2: That's right. It, but it's much more complex than that.
0: Yeah, I wonder, Scott. Could you say something also about decisions not to prevent, right? Because those are the the, the sort of other side of the coin is opportunities that pose themselves for prevention um, that never came to be, and obviously there was a debate in the United States about whether to strangle the baby in the cradle in China to to head off the Chinese nuclear arsenal. So can you talk a little bit about how you compare cases of prevention and the logics that sort of instantiated those decisions and cases where live opportunity ripe opportunities for prevention were passed on and sort of the interplay between those two decision processes
2: yeah um that's a great question and we can talk about that within the context of the united states my first book actually took a look at at that question very specifically because in the early cold war um, peaking at, at around 1950 there was an active debate in the United States. Um, or a position, a very strong position taken by a number of, of strategic thinkers, military officers, political leaders, that the United States should not tolerate the rise of, a, of an atomic armed Soviet Union, uh, particularly Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. And they were advocating an American preventive attack against the USSR. Uh, this was an option that made its way to President Truman, it made its way to President Eisenhower, both president's decisively rejected the preventive war option against the USSR. Um, it was actively studied in the case of, of China, China conducted its first, uh, atomic test in 1964. Um, but president Kennedy, then president Johnson decided not to take the political risks and under four administrations, they chose from president Truman through president Johnson. They, they chose not to pull the trigger. Primarily for political reasons, not for military reasons. And this is the the argument that I make. Um, And there's a tremendous amount of evidence to show that what was really troubling Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower was this notion of striking out when you don't actually face an imminent threat was un American. It's it's something we do not do. It's, it's inherently aggressive. This is what the Japanese did to us at Pearl Harbor. You know, So here, here's Harry Truman saying when advisors are, are making the argument, well, we, we can't sit back while we still have effective atomic monopoly and let Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union develop this existential threat against the United States. Uh, but for purely ethical and political reasons, Truman and Eisenhower rejected it. Um, and, I, and Kennedy and, and Johnson rejected this option in the Chinese case for the same political reasons. They would have uh, blowback from our allies, from neutral states, um, and it would come at some larger political cost to America's role in the world. And in those cases, again, I can understand in 1950 this fear that drives certain thinkers – to advocate preventive war against the soviet union it's very easy to make the case in nsc 68 that that seminal early cold war document of 1950 they're they're describing the soviet threat as not just a threat to the american republic but as a threat to civilization itself but they chose not to pull the trigger it was only after 45 years with the peaceful collapse of the soviet union that we now know it would have been a horrifyingly tragic choice to make. Um, and I'll give you one other quick example, which I do talk extensively about. I have an entire chapter on von Bismarck um, in my current book. And, and to me, he's a fascinating strategic thinker. Um, Bismarck was under continual pressure by military leadership within Prussia and then the unified German state uh, late 19th century to launch preventive war against both France and Russia. He rejected it time after time after time because he was so politically powerful within the German military system. And his argument was the core argument that I make in this book, what I call the preventive war paradox. Even though he believed the German army could, on the battlefield, win a victory against the French army or against the Russian army in the 1880s. He realized that the political effect would be that you would stoke so much anger and hatred and a desire for revenge that it would haunt Germany for generations to come. And we see over 30 years, Otto von Bismarck is holding the line against preventive war and he is able to manipulate the threat, keep the threat as low as possible within the European system and it's not until he is out of office he's dead they have a new kaiser and then the next generation of german leaders decide that they're going to actually pull the preventable trigger and we see what the result is um so both in the german case and the american case i think it was wise leadership uh under bismarck and under uh, a series of american presidents to to exercise restraint
1: yeah no thank you i am I'm, I'm struck by you quote Clausewitz in the book, you know, in, in war, the result is never final. And I think and I think you make the point over and over that that's that's even more true of politics, you know, that that uh, you can have at least um, you can have final results in war, albeit, you know, sometimes the most horrific forms of war or with a, a political ingredient following on it. But the political competition, both within and between states, uh, grinds on sort of ceaselessly. And I'm, I'm struck almost, you know, I, I hesitate to, to quote or invoke him, but the, the kind of David Petraeus a rock line, tell me how this ends, that seems kind of at the core of your argument, right? In terms of, yes, you could start a preventive war, or you could end that war even on your own terms, but where do we sit as a result of the second, third, fourth order effects of that of that decision to use force, um, to willfully use force, to unnecessarily use force in a way? Where does that take us in a variety of different pathways in five years, 10 years or more, right?
2: Yeah, to me, this is such... Uh, a central issue when we think about this basic problem, um, and, and and you're right, Clausewitz. I, I love that line from Clausewitz. Right, military operations end; they all military operations always end. But but the question is, the next day politics continues. What happens the day after? And um, I, what what troubles me about how many American thinkers, professional strategic thinkers approach this question of um do we use military force now to deal with this particular problem is the fact that they routinely confuse operational military success and strategic success and in the united states of america has over many decades developed incredible skill and competence at the application of firepower as you know Um, and you can define victory, you can define success, any given military military, um, operation in purely military terms. Can you destroy this target? Can you overthrow this government? Can you occupy this territory? And we're really good at this, but that's not why you actually have engaged in the use of military force. You engage in military force for the political outcomes for, for what happens after the dust settles. So the paradox that I talk about in this book is there are so many cases in which you can win on the battlefield, but you fully fail to achieve the political strategic objectives that drove you to the use of force in the first place, and then might actually magnify the problems that you are now confronted with because of what, what you, what you put in motion.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Let me ask you a question off of that, and I think especially as a professor at West Point, you hear the argument sometimes made that the military and military leadership, and even up to guys with stars on their collars, are fundamentally operational level and often tactical level thinkers and decision makers, and obviously they need to be aware of uh, of politics and aware of the end state and informed by the you know informed by the desired end state. But that part of the problem is that we're having Generals solve uh, or be the decisive voice on questions that should be answered by uh, by diplomats, by elected political leaders. That there's a deference to the military. How how does that weigh into you when you look at, especially as an educator of future lieutenants and then and then future generals down the line? Maybe maybe after you've retired in some cases. But how do you how do you think about that balance and and whether the United States is is, is fundamentally off course in in to you know to bring in Clemens Oda, leaving leaving too much to the generals. Yeah, I think Cummins over is right. Um, You know, war
2: is too important to be left to the generals. And um, it's a provocative statement to make, but it's incumbent on civilian leadership, um, those either in leadership positions or those uh, who are advising them to have this more well-rounded perspective on the use of military force. The military professionals' core expertise is in the application of violence that is their core expertise making this logical leap between if i achieve these certain battlefield objectives how does that produce a a certain political outcome that that introduces a whole set of variables that the military shouldn't necessarily be called on to be experts in and you know one of the things that we were grappling with back at west point as we were sending our second lieutenants and young captains downrange with these incredibly complex political missions. And you know um, the complexity of the situation that was faced by platoon leaders and company commanders really representing the United States of America with tremendous firepower at their disposal at the village level, responsible for trying to recreate new social orders and new political orders and new economic systems. And we were getting feedback from the field as we're trying to adapt the West point program, our educational program to the, to the demands being placed on these young officers shoulders. And we're realizing we have to stuff so much expertise into their kit bag, because they're the only ones out there doing this sort of thing to be given this job and they don't have the kind of support they need. Um, the The ambitious political objectives are so complex that um, I came to the conclusion a few years into it, that, you know, we are we are, Grossly taxing the the reasonable level of competence our right. military should be expected to assume, but if you don't have mm-hmm. civilians who are who are um, vocal enough and confident enough to to sit down with military leaders to work through our strategic options and work through how we're going to deal with these problems, we're fundamentally going to default to sort of the the, the military's way of of thinking about this. Um, so uh, this is just a, 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 constant process for us at West Point to, to educate, uh, our cadets and and hopefully some of the lessons about, um, that, that the political objectives really mm-hmm. should be what you're, what you're, what you're looking at. Um, and, and, uh, the military tools oftentimes aren't going to get you there.
0: Yeah. Scott, so- but be- before we let you go, I'd like to ask you, obviously it's the first week of December, uh, and we have a sort of possible case of preventive logic in the news these days. Um, And there's both, maybe they're separable. There's a sort of American logic and maybe an Israeli or Gulf Arab state's logic to preventing the emergence of an Iranian nuclear arsenal. And we may have a lot of empirical doubts about the urgency of that uh, prevention, or the proximity of an Iranian nuclear arsenal, but ha- can you talk about how you see that? How you see those different logics interplaying, and what your sort of take on it all is?
1: Yeah, and, and I know you mentioned the book, Scott. You mentioned the Iraqi, you know, the uh, Iraqi nuclear arsenal and the Osirik reactor attack. If you could, you know, bring that in. As-
2: the most important contemporary question that we have is uh, how do we deal with Iran, and this long-running concern that Iran may have nuclear ambitions. And if you follow this story long enough, you know that one of the recommendations has been the use of of preventive attacks against key nodes within Iran's uh, nuclear weapons uh, infrastructure. And this creates um, a a tremendous dilemma for political leaders. And obviously, um, what we've seen just in the last few years and really in the last few weeks uh, from the Trump administration, is really sort of an echo of the debates that were being uh, held in the in the Bush administration back in the mid-2000s. And what's interesting is the Israelis approached the Bush administration back in 2007 looking for political support, looking for a green light uh, if Israel made the decision to attack key uh, facilities within Iran. And the argument that won the day, the United States, of course, withheld uh, this green light. We were not going to back up uh, iran and president bush made this specific decision the winning argument and this comes from uh, robert gates memoirs it comes from um the uh the memoirs and, and comments being made by uh former cia director uh michael hayden that the reason the bush administration would not approve of this operation against iran uh in in robert gates's words is you'd only buy yourself a year or two you would not be able to destroy All of Iran's capabilities to develop nuclear weapons and what Robert Gates said is you might actually inspire the thing that you're trying to prevent this might give Iran uh, that final incentive to move beyond some breakout capability and actually go underground and develop an actual nuclear weapon uh, in order to deal with uh, this uh, particular pressure. But uh, the Bush administration rejected this, um, and we've seen other efforts that you could you could legitimately classify as as preventive actions. The Stuxnet, Stuxnet virus uh, that uh, was introduced in Iran's uh, uranium enrichment facility back in in 2010 um, was an example of preventive action, uh, but of a very different type because it actually. Um, Uh, destroyed centrifuges and set back Iran's program. And you can consider the assassination program against key Iranian nuclear scientists as preventive action as well.
1: Scott, it's been a real pleasure having you on and uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Can you tell us what you're working on at the moment and where to find your work for anyone that's listening? Well, I'm
2: working on a passion project right now. I'm actually working on a book Uh, on the Athenian Empire, actually. I am um, a a, a real um, uh, fascinated student of the ancient Greeks. Uh, This book is not going to be – it's not going to see the light of day for a few years. It's probably going to be another three to four years. I'm deep in the research phase right now. But uh, for those of you who have studied international relations, you know that uh, the Peloponnesian War, ancient Athens, and ancient Sparta – it is sort of the original case uh, of of great power war. That's that's sort of part of how we um, are educating students and and part of the larger debate about um, historical cases uh, that we we think back on to to think about contemporary issues of, of strategy and politics. Um, but this book is really about the origins of the Athenian Empire. Um, so more to follow on that.
0: I'm Justin Logan. Thank you for tuning in. You can find encounters on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the CSS website, css.cua.edu. Thanks again, and we look forward to you tuning in next time.